Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. All right. We are continuing this morning in Mark chapter 12. And uh, I was going to go all the way from verse 18 to 34, but I know y'all like to eat, so uh, I've probably lunch would have gotten in the way of that, so we'll finish it up next week. But there is a lot packed into this passage this morning. And so if you brought a copy of God's Word, would you open it to Mark chapter 12? We're going to be starting with verse 18 in just a moment. You see, last week on Easter Sunday, we experienced Jesus proclaiming, exercising, and demonstrating His authority while religious leaders over and over try to trap him with his words and his actions by asking him questions that had no good answer to them. And so each time Jesus returned to their questions around on them, which proved his point and made them look petty. So he used their own traps against them. And so in today's passage, the barrage of trap questions continues. And this time, it's from a highly respected group of leaders called the Sadducees. And this is the only time they're actually mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. So if you're playing Bible trivia, that will help you out. But after the Pharisees and supporters of Herod failed to trap Jesus with their tax questions, remember, should we pay Caesar or not? Should we pay in taxes? Well, Jesus got out of this one. So now we have a question that they have successfully used against the Pharisees. So they could not come with it up with an answer. So they figured if they could trap their Pharisee friends, then they could truly trap Jesus. Now, the, the Sadducee, a lot of times if you're just reading the Bible, you, you see Pharisees, you see Sadducees, and you just, you just kind of gloss over that and read that. But, but Pharisees were the poor man's Sadducees. What does that mean? The Pharisees were, they were definitely prominent. They, they were prominent in the religious law, the Jewish law. They were involved in the temple and in the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council. So they were not slouches. The, the Pharisees were, were very important to the Jewish faith and the way that they experienced uh, worshiping God in that way. But then there were the Sadducees. Now, this is not uh, a, uh, a tried and true method, but one reason you can differentiate the Pharisees from the Sadducees is this little saying here. It's so sad you see that they don't believe in the resurrection. By that, I mean the Pharisees, they believed in resurrection. They believed that they needed a Messiah. But the sad, the fair, the, I'm getting tongue-tied. The Sadducees, they were just like them except more because they rejected anything that had to do with the supernatural. Anything that had to do with resurrection or afterlife or born again and all of these things that were like a metaphysical things you can't touch, things you can't feel, things you can't know. So uh, when it came to things like eternity and afterlife, healing and even the resurrection, they seemed unexplainable and impossible to them. Now you say, well, well, that was kind of crazy. I mean, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. We celebrated Easter last week. Everybody ought to know. 
Well, the truth is there are many people that have the spirit of the Sadducees today. They don't believe in spiritual things. Some people don't believe in God. There are some people that are still trying to figure out. There are some people that if they can't put it on a balance sheet or if they can't recreate something with a science experiment, then it's not valuable and it's, it's not true. But there are some things that we just have to take by faith. And the Sadducees had a hard time with that. Now, the Sadducees believed that when the body died, the soul died. I mean, really, that when you died, you were dirt, and that's it. And that is so sad, but that's what they believed. They they believed that not only did the body die, but the soul died. That's why I'm so grateful when I have the privilege of leading families through funerals for their loved ones, that their loved one knew Jesus Christ, I am able to tell them that that person before them, their soul is with Jesus and the shell before them is who they used to be. That is why we have hope in death. That is why we know that there will be something on the other side of this world. But for those that don't share that, there is no hope. And the thing is, is that the scriptures support the resurrection. And ironically, Jesus was about to use the scriptures, the very scriptures that the Sadducees used, to prove the validity of his pending resurrection. Just one thing about the Sadducees. They didn't have the entire Bible at this point. They had available to them the Old Testament, right? But... Of the Old Testament books, they only believed that the first five written by Moses were inspired and truly the Word of God. So they they used something called the Pentateuch, which was basically the first five books of the Bible, Penta meaning five. And so they felt like that the resurrection, if it's not, whatever they believe, if it's not in those five books, then they're not going to believe it. And again, these were uh, very well-to-do people. They were very educated. They were the, the Ivy League Pharisees, so to speak. The Sadducees, were, were, they had all the lineage. They had all the power. They had all of the, the critical thinking skills. And so uh, they, were, they were seen as somebody that when you grow up, that's who you wanted to be if you were Jewish and wanted to be an expert in the law. But in Jesus' last days, remember, this is Jesus coming into Jerusalem for the last time. And in Jesus' last days, while answering these questions, he gives you and I powerful teaching on accessing the power for our daily living. We are going to see access to daily power for our living, not only for today, but eternity as well. So we are going to start by reading Mark 12, verses 18 through 27. And it says, Then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead, and they posed this question. I'm sure their chest was bowed out. This was one of their big trick questions that they got everybody with. Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies, leaving a wife without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. That was a, a, a Leverite law that was written in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And we'll, t- we'll tell you why in just a minute, why that was important. I know some of you are thinking there is no way I would let my brother-in-law marry my spouse if, if I were passed away or vice versa, you know. But anyway, it worked then, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. And so it says in verse 
19, teacher Moses gave us the law. If a man dies, leaving a wife without his children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose, now here comes the question. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. Now, this gets kind of crazy. Hang with me. There were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So, because of that law, so the second brother married the widow, but he also died without children. Then the third big brother died, and they did not have children. And it went on and went on. Verse 22, this continued with all seven of them, and still there were no children. Last of all, the woman who also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Wow. Wow. We know that that is not literally what would happen. They are making up this question to trap Jesus. Now, in today's world, a family's name and their wealth and estate can be taken through, can be taken care of through what they call probate, probate court, probate lawyers, or if there's a will that spells out everything, pretty much you could just do whatever the will states, but but back then they didn't have probate court. They didn't have wills and testaments that were legally binding. All they had was the family. So if if someone were to pass away and he had a wife and children, if they did not come into the rest of the family and if they did not get uh if they did not have a child, then that family would start to cease to exist. Everything that that man accumulated would be kind of people would fight over it and uh, wouldn't necessarily stay in the family. And so back then, if a widow's husband were to die, then it could mean if the family didn't take care of them, that they could be on the street. Well, in this day, if a man passed away, his brother would marry his brother's wife to keep his dead brother's family and legacy alive, as well as assure all the family and assets they would be taken care of. So, in verse 23, this is the, the piping question. So tell us, Jesus, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Let me ask you, who do you think? If, if this lady had married seven men, and all of them died, my first question would be not what they would do in heaven. My first question would be, why do they keep marrying her? Evidently, she's what they call a black widow. Or a roach motel, when the men, they get into her life, they never come out. Except in a box. This is ludicrous, this question. That, that this, this would even, so, but that's not the case. They, they thought they really got him on this. And so, in verse 24, Jesus replied, I love this. Now these are the smartest men at the meeting this day. The smartest men in the city. And he looked at them and he said, your mistake is, first of all, we don't make mistakes. But he told them, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Woo! We just talked about his authority last week and here he is showing again. But I feel like and I believe and I know that Jesus could say that to many people that are in a church service this morning. He could tell them, you've made a mistake because you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. 
Many people are in churches today because it's what they've always done. There are many people that are enjoying their family time and not going to church anymore since COVID because they realized once they missed one Sunday, it was easier to mix the next one. And then they'll come up with excuses and all these other reasons. But the truth of the matter is, is that if, if we, whether we are sitting in pews in this church or sitting at home watching the screen or not even going to church, if you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God and you will not experience the power of God. So my friend, if you are expecting to experience the power of God in your life and you're whining about it, ah, God, you won't do anything for me. Are you in his word? Are you trusting him at his word? Don't throw these Sadducees under the bus because it could be you and it could be me. Again, they were the smartest men and he was challenging them. And today there are brilliant people, as I said earlier, who see the gospel of Jesus as foolishness. And then verse 25, for when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like angels in heaven. Okay, here we go. Again, that's what I love about preaching through a book of the Bible, is that sometimes you get into, uh, I guess you could say, uh, ruts, or um, kind of like your wagon wheel gets stuck in a ditch, and you have to spend some time with it. We're going to spend some time here just for a minute with this passage. Again, these, Pharisees, these Sadducees have spent all this time coming up with this question, and so now, here we go. Preacher, are you saying I'm not going to know my, my husband in heaven? Are you going to say I'm not going to know my wife in heaven? Are you, is Jesus saying we're not going to be married? What is about how in the world is that going to happen? I don't understand, preacher. Well, I'll tell you, I don't fully understand either. But we'll understand when we get there. But I'll tell you what Jesus says about it. And I'll tell you what his word says about it. Here's Jesus on marriage in heaven. And if you want a parallel account of this story, you can go to Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. So this is Jesus on marriage in heaven. And here are the three main points that we are going to walk through. First and foremost, I can, I can feel the shift in the room. You, you can just say, okay, preacher, what are you going to say about this? I'm not going to say anything. God's word is. Number one, we see, first and foremost, that we are unable to comprehend life after resurrection. We know songs that talk about it. We know scriptures that talk about it. We know our opinions. We know what we've heard preachers say at funerals. But if you look at Isaiah 64, verse 4, or 1 Corinthians 2, 9, you're going to see that we don't have a clue to what it's going to be like. And I want you to understand, Jesus' statement here does not mean that people won't recognize their spouses in the coming kingdom. It simply means that God's new order will not be an extension of this life. And that the same physical and natural rules won't apply. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, if heaven is just like this place, except a little bit better, then we've been sold a, a, a false bill of goods. Right? But at the same time, if, if we think that, that, that Jesus... Like I remember years ago we had the old... Uh, um, the televisions that had like the big tube in the, in the box, you know, they were heavy. You'd, you'd bust a hernia just trying to, to move it around. Or how many of y'all are old enough to remember you were the remote control for your parents? 
Hey, son, get up and change that. Hey, can you move those rabbit ears to the left? Go get some aluminum foil out of the kitchen and put it on that antenna. Let's see if we can get, get a better picture there. But now we've got HD. We've got 4K, 8K. You can see a, a video of an aquarium and feel like you're swimming in it. And the, the point is, is that sometimes we think that heaven's going to be like that, that really bright, nice, special television. Everything like it is, just better. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, heaven's going to blow us out of the water. It's not the same. Jesus' statement, again, does not mean that people won't recognize others in, coming, in the coming kingdom. Number two, why do you have a, a grandmother and then a mother and then a son or daughter? Why do you go back to Ancestry.com and look at your great, 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 great grandmother or grandfather? What about you to talk about your third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh cousin? I, you know, after the first cousin, I kind of lose count. But, but why, do we have all, why do we have all these family trees? Tell me. Why is it lined up like that? Why is, okay, simple question. Why is your mother your mother? This is not rocket science. I know, preacher, you're not supposed to talk in church. You're supposed to preach. We're just supposed to listen. Why is your mother your mother or your father your father? I know, y'all, preacher, just say it. We don't know what you mean. We don't know what you're asking. The reason your mother is your mother is because she was born before you. The reason your great-grandmother is your great-grandmother is because she was born way before you. The reason your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother or grandfather are that is because they were born way, way, way back. So what I'm trying to get you to see is that when we think of grandmother, grandfather, Gigi, Pappy, and, and all these other different names that we have for our, our children, our grandchildren, all the different generations after generations, why are they that? It's simply because of when they were born. What do you mean, preacher? Well, let me tell you. Parents, grandparents, grandchild, grandchildren, fifth cousins, all that. What about a couple? Now, here it goes. This is pretty good. What about a couple that divorces? Let's say a couple divorces, and then all of a sudden, they, they, they just, it did not work. We'll just say that. Some of you in here know the pain of divorce. Some of you have gone through divorce. Some of you have thought about divorce. Some of you have family members that have gone through divorce. Boy, heaven's really going to be awkward, isn't it? If both of them are Christians, what are you going to do when all of a sudden you're on your second or third remarriage and then all of a sudden your exes come up and, oh, they, they accept Jesus. Now, what are y'all going to do about that? You ever thought of that? Well, here's what we look at. Family structures on earth are based on the time from which they were born. We have measurements of time. We have measurements of age. We have measurements of life and death. But when we get to heaven, we are not going to have those measurements anymore. Time will be timeless. Barriers and, and, and age will be gone. But we also see that also in the, what Jesus is saying here, marriages will not define our relationships in heaven. The good news for you, my friend, is 
is that if you have been through divorce or if you've lost a spouse and remarried, what are we going to do about that? That's going to be kind of awkward. That'll be like a family meeting I don't want to go to. But the truth of the matter is, is that God gave us marriage on this earth, right? The only marriage that will be recognized in heaven, though, there is a marriage that will be recognized in heaven, that is Jesus Christ as the bridegroom and his church as the bride. That So we are all going to be on the same playing field. That does not mean that we are not going to know one another from the roles that we had on this earth, but what it does mean is that those roles are not going to matter anymore because we will be one, one body, one church, all in the presence of the Lord. And also, I want to tell you, this does not mean that we lose our identity. I hope that means if you're a jerk on earth, it doesn't mean you'll be a jerk in heaven. I understand that. But the truth of the matter is, is that this does not mean that we lose our identity. And I'll show you why in just a minute. It, it also, it doesn't mean that, uh, that we can't hang out with our loved ones and those that have walked on this earth. It will be different. Well, how's it going to be different, preacher? I don't know. I hadn't been there. But Jesus is saying that marriage is not... In other words, he just took all of the, the air out of their argument by saying, you guys are measuring with the wrong stick. Marriage is not going to be that important in heaven. Matter of fact, it, it's not even part of heaven. So all of this stuff that you're coming up with, Marriage will not be needed in heaven. God created marriage. Why did God create marriage? First and foremost, Adam was lonely and he needed a helper. Number two, Adam and Eve needed to multiply mankind. We are not going to need to multiply in heaven. Just say, well, I wonder if somebody can have babies in heaven. I don't know. Again, we'll put that under... We'll find out when we get there. But I do know this. The only way for someone to get into heaven is by a relationship with Jesus Christ. That they have repented, they have asked for forgiveness of their sins, and they are brought unto God. So that would mean that you can't, you can't really be born into heaven because the only way into heaven is through Jesus Christ. So I don't know. Well, preacher, you're supposed to clear this up. I can't. But I'm telling you that it says here that there were two reasons. Adam was lonely, and Adam and Eve needed to multiply mankind. So in heaven there will be no loneliness. You will not need that helper because you will be in the presence of God, your Creator. Loneliness will be gone. There will be no need for others to help for procreation. Those who get into heaven do so through Jesus Christ, and there will be no need to create. So then we move to verse 26. But now, as to whether the dead will be raised, haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses? So he's saying, come on, guys. You yourself only believe the first five books of the Bible. So haven't you read your own stuff? It's kind of like if I'm putting together something at home and it's not working, and my wife lovingly says, well, where are the directions? I don't know. I don't read the directions. Until finally I find the directions and I realize that slot C5 was actually C7. and Anyway, if you've ever had to put together something from one of those, you know, it starts as a box. <laughs> then it gives you wood glue and wooden dowels. 
Yeah. Mm-mm. But anyway, verse 26 again. But now as to whether the dead will be raised, haven't you read about this in the writings of Moses in the story of the burning bush? Check this out. Long before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. You have made a serious error. So what we see here is that Jesus is using the Sadducees' very own scripture to prove the validity of his pending resurrection. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still had their identity. For example, remember when Jesus is talking about this, and he's talking about in Deuteronomy, he says, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been assimilated into greater things while losing their individuality, in other words, it was no longer Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it was just three dudes in heaven. Yeah? Jesus would have said that, but no, they have their names. They have a name. Jesus has listed their names there. God would not have said that he is their God. Speaking in the present tense, he would have said he was their God. We also know that a lot of people believe that of the two witnesses that, that show up in the Revelation on the, on the wailing wall are Moses and Elijah. And you see them exactly as they are. In the Mount of Transfiguration, you see them appear to Jesus and the other few disciples that went up with him. Abraham is still Abraham. Isaac is still Isaac. Jacob is still Jacob. Connie Strickland is still Connie Strickland. Wayne Strickland is still Wayne Strickland. Jesus is using his own words. So, so don't get hung up on, will I be married to my spouse in heaven? I don't know if you're going to be married to him, but I do know this, you're going to know him. You're going to have a relationship with him. They are going to be part of your family. And all of your things that you care about will no longer be what I can get out of a relationship, but what I can give to God. Also remember, Jesus' comment in verse 25 was not intended to be the final word on marriage in heaven. Instead, this response, Jesus is not trying to give us a whole dissertation of what heaven is going to be like in this response. He is simply taking the air out of the argument that the disciples, that the the Sadducees were making. He got out of the trap. Also, true power is found in making God your first priority. True power is found in making God your first priority. As we look at verses 28 through 34, it says, One of the most, or one of the teachers of the religious law was standing there listening to the debate, and he realized that Jesus had answered well. So he asked, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? So we don't know if this question was genuine, like he was really, his interest was piqued, or what. But we know from the parallel account in Matthew 22 that this person that asked the question was actually a Pharisee. And now when, when you look at it, it says, out of all the commandments, which is the most important, that's a pretty big thing. Did you know that the scribes had determined that the Jews were obligated to obey 613 precepts in religious law? 613. I can't even make the Big Ten. 613. 365 of them 
are negative precepts, and 248 of them are positive. So one of their favorite exercises was discussing which of these commandments was the greatest. That's what they did in their off time. Well, the religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus into disregarding. What he was doing here is like some of you that have multiple children. I know you have your favorite, but you're not going to tell anybody who it is. But you always think the truth of the matter is they're all your favorites. But how could you as a parent, if you have multiple children, say, well, you know what, this is my favorite child. They're all important. Because if you say one child is important, the others are going to feel important. So what the Pharisees are trying to do here and the Sadducees are trying to do here is to say, Aha! If Jesus says this one is important, the opposite means he thinks this one is not important. So now he is stepping on the tradition of our Jewish law. So now we can get him. That was, that was their plot there. And Jesus said in verse 29, The more important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. So instead of Jesus picking one in these two statements, he summed them all up into two verses. And actually, Jesus is only quoting Old Testament Scripture. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. So these words were the very word from his father, which was from Moses' writings. They were supposed to be experts in Moses' writing. How infuriated do you think some of them were to hear Jesus use their own words against them? I'll go ahead and tell you, there are times where I preach and I go home and my wife has to remind me of what I preached about. And I don't like that. Or sometimes you make a statement and somebody remembers that you said that and then you do the same thing and they're like, remember what you said? A little bit of that's going on here. So instead of promoting one command over the other, Jesus combined the essence of all of them by saying this. And Jesus then quoted Leviticus 19.18 which emphasizes the love for our neighbor. So Jesus, is, Jesus made love the most important thing in life because love is fulfilling the law of God. And that is found in Romans 13. So if you would, just for a second, put your thumb there in, in Mark chapter 12. And go over to Romans just for a minute. Romans 13, starting with verse 8. And if you don't have it, or have a Bible, it's on the screen. If you can see it, the text is probably really small for some of you. But it says, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandment says, You must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others. So love fulfills a requirement of God's law. I want you to see what, what Paul is reemphasizing what Jesus has just said here. These things like adultery and murder and stealing. Who were those sins committed against? 
your neighbor. So if you truly love your neighbor, you're not going to want to do these things. And the reason we have the trouble that we have in this world today is because people do not love God and they do not love their neighbor. They don't see their neighbor as a sheep. They see them as a, a wolf sees a sheep for dinner to devour. Can you imagine what this world would be like without these sins? Now let's look back at, let's go back to Mark 12, verse 32. The teacher of the religious law replied, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. So what Jesus sees here, he sees this religious leader starting to get it. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. What does it mean when a person is not far from the kingdom of God? Some of you, that may be you today, or it was you at some point. This Pharisee, it means someone is facing the truth of Scriptures instead of defending their party line. That For some people, all of a sudden, they're more worried about what God's Word says than their political pundits say. They're more worried about tuning into Scripture and going to church than watching Fox News or CNN or MSNBC. That all of a sudden it's not important where your political alliance is as much as your spiritual alliance is. It means that the person is testing his or her faith by what the Word of God says and not by what some religious group demands. you got to be careful, folks. There is a lot of tradition and religion in churches, and ours is no different, and Southern Baptist is no different. Some of the things we believe and do, we just do it and believe it because that's the way it's always been, amen? But the book doesn't have a book of opinions. There is no book of opinions in the Bible. There is no book of traditions in the Bible. There is only the Bible. And there are some people that all of a sudden they start stripping away and chipping away and they're doing what they've always done just because they ought to do it. Then all of a sudden they start reading God's Word and it starts making sense to them and they are starting to make that trek to come to know Jesus. It also means that you're willing to stand for something even if it means you lose your friends and making new enemies. This Pharisee was headed towards knowing Jesus. This Pharisee began to catch a glimpse of the gospel. The man's next step was to place his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know because of scriptures. We don't know if this Pharisee that is starting to see the light, we don't know if he ever became a true believer. But we have to remember that being close to being a Christian is still infinitely far away. I remember, I don't even know if he's still living now. Y'all remember Cleve McClary? He was a a guest speaker. He would go to schools. He would go to churches. Uh, He was a veteran, and he had had lost most of his extremities and an eye in the war, but yet he still went around and he preached. I'll never forget he told this illustration about uh, a baseball game, about this team. They needed one more run, so the guy got at the back. He clocked it, and uh, he started running the bases, 
ran around one, two, three, slid to home in the last minute, and the umpire said, you're out. The crowd went wild. The player was livid. The team was clearing the bench, wanting to get to this umpire. But the problem was, they said, why in the world would you call him out? He said, because the runner never touched first base. My friends, you can be close to Jesus. But what did they say? Only Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. You can be close to Jesus. But to know Jesus and to know the benefit of the power that he has for our daily living comes by placing your faith in in him. So as we wrap up our time together today, folks, you can access God's true power for living by keeping his word that is right here, not by living by your own or someone else's. My friend, if your biggest conviction is a hashtag on Twitter, you got problems. If your biggest cause is something that you saw on your favorite news show, you got problems. Because of all the problems you've got, the one thing that will solve this world, the one thing that will bring power into your life is acknowledging Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords, acknowledging that you love him, that you follow him, and it's at his will and not your will. And it's more important about what this says rather than what my social media feed says. You see, when we doubt God's word, we doubt his power to do what he has promised to do in Scripture. My friend, if you're not feeling God's power in your life, I just humbly ask you, and I don't say this in a judgmental way because I'm talking to myself on this. If you are not feeling God's power in your life, how much Scripture are you reading and how much of that are you applying? Remember, we've got to love God first and love our neighbor as ourselves and then I'm not saying we, we don't need to love ourselves. We all need a, a healthy dose of self-esteem, but not to the point where it puts us, God, under us or others under us. And so if loving God is not your first priority, then every other spiritual act you carry out will be empty. If you go to church and you do not love God and he's not your priority, you are religious. If you fill your life with Christian things, bumper stickers, T-shirts, and social media posts, and all these different things, but you don't read God's Word, you don't pray to Him, and you don't give your life to Jesus Christ, all of those things are empty. Our lives are to be complemented and illustrate Scripture, not contradict it. Here's the thing. Did you know? that the very scripture that you read will be used to bless you or used to judge you. Bottom line, at the end of the day, what God is going to ask everybody is, what did you do with my word? What did you do with my son? You need God's power in this world, needs to see God's power displayed through his people. Folks, Jesus lists several areas where his power enables a Christian to do what is counterintuitive to human nature and cultural pressures. I was talking to somebody the other day. They were talking about how they, they have people that in their circle that you know what they're going to talk about. It's always going to center around politics or some kind of problem or, or some kind of gossip. And I just tell them, 
Try interjecting Jesus into that comment. Two things will happen. Number one, it will change the subject. And number two, those people won't want to talk to you anymore. And that's probably a good thing. Or if they do, if they do want to talk to you, they're not going to give you that trashy gossip they've been giving you. Because they know you're going to be all spiritual and give it back to Jesus. And that's who needs it. If you love God and love others before yourself, people will see it and God will use it. So please stop living your life in your own power by yielding to Jesus and his word this morning. My friends, there is a great hymn. And and in the title, there is a word that we all must do. It is called surrender. Are you willing to surrender all to Jesus? Are you willing to whether you are a Christian or even a non-Christian and you say, today I surrender all to you, Lord. I want that power in my life. I want to get back in your word. I want to get back to experiencing the power that comes from you. If today is your day and you want to come to this altar and pray, or if you'd like to pray with me, or pray right where you are, you can. If you'd like to join this church and become saved, today is the day to do that as you are asked by God to surrender all. Would you please stand? Donna, would you please stand?